Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you and your work for His Kingdom. Thank you, Fiona. Um, let's see, so um, what you heard this morning is part of a larger project. Um, that was my first outtake. <clears throat> it was my first outtake because um, it was the hardest for me to do. Um, it, I learned the most about myself by doing that particular segment. Um, and the things that, uh, the, the little packages that I put God into, and then you read scripture and you were kind of like knocked for a loop, and well, that was me. <clears throat> the origin of that larger project comes from my involvement in political, political life in the United States. Um, I'm a real geek on that front. My first political campaign, anybody care to guess? How old was I? 12 years old. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I was one of those kind of kids. <laughs> I loved politics from an early age. Um, and and my, my work for the last oh, about 12 years, 15 years, was to map how you go from orthodox Christian belief to public policy. And I created a great philosophical I think it's quite elegant myself, um, uh, sort of structure by which we can do that. And, and the first part is uh, sort of biblical foundations. And so I was working again on that, except this time I started to really take scripture seriously. And somewhere around March, April, I realized this part of the project, the biblical foundations, that's pretty much a life or two work in and of itself. Because what you really find is there's so much wealth and so richness, so much richness in Scripture about political concepts. But we'll talk a little bit about this. We're trained not to see that. Uh, let's see, I need my clicker. Forgive me. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just going to see that slide the whole time. We're trained not to see this by one of these guys. This tradition, this is John Locke, and he creates the tradition of liberalism, which is the air we all breathe. It's the water we all swim in. And one of the things that I taught, I taught this again this last semester, and I taught this book called A Letter Concerning Toleration. <clears throat> and he says, I esteem that toleration to be the chief characteristic mark of the true church. So what do you think of that? Is that the greatest commandment? Tolerate sin. That's what we should do. That's what Jesus says. That's the full summation of the law. What? Huh, but this is it. This is what the chief characteristic mark. And John Locke begins this whole long tradition where we put faith on one side and, and neutral reason on the other. Now, neutral reason, what do, we, what do you mean? It means that, that the, the form it takes in the United States and I think Australia too, it's something like this. We as citizens disagree about what kind of food is the best. And so what we should all do, it's the strategy my daughter tries to use, tried to use when she was younger, what should we all, should, all should do is just agree to, to eat only the food we all like, right? Well, that means we only eat cake and Reese's peanut butter cups and Coca-Cola. And our teeth rot out and our bodies language and we get sick. And that does, it doesn't make any sense. If the only kind of words we can speak in public are the words that are acceptable to the least mature kinds of people, 
Well, then is it any wonder that our body politics starts to get sick? It gets really sick. And I know we're all, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to say because, you know, if you start talking the gospel in public life, you're one of those street preacher kind of guys and everybody doesn't like it and you, you're, you're imposing your faith and oh, everybody gets all angry. And in the United States, they now start taking your businesses away. So, you know, I understand there's this fear of being, or, or the other fear is being a theonomist, all this kind of stuff. But I get that. But we ought not accept that framework all the time for everything we do in public life. All right. So um, I took this derailment from my project because I think it says some things that are really shocking and surprising. And it's a lot of fun. And you get to find things that you never realized in scripture. And it doesn't take a lot of resources to do it. You don't have to buy lots of books to do it. So this is what, what I did with my class. I had a seminar, and we a friend of mine and I, uh, he's dean of the law school at Handong, um, we took, just sat down on an afternoon and said, what are critical political topics that we can talk about? So this is the list we came up with. And every week, we taught a, a two and a half hour class, uh, two hours, 45 minutes, I guess. And our students would come together, and we would try to think about what is it that we can think about in the scripture that's political. So we started off with kingdom. <clears throat> and that first class was awful. We couldn't figure out why. Why is this not working? And it turns out the students spiritualize everything in scripture. This is the liberal tradition at work within our hearts. We, we don't see when Jesus <laughs> when talks about a kingdom, we mean, oh, it's some sort of, what's the picture I got here for us? Yeah, it's, it's magic kingdom. You know, it's, it's, it's fairyland. It's, it's, it's medieval heralds and all that kind of stuff. Well, but <clears throat> it's not. Oh, oh by the way, um, I realized last night when I was going through all my material that there's no way I'm going to make it through all these four topics in, in 55 minutes or so. It ain't going to happen. We're probably not going to get to church at all tonight, this morning. So truth in advertising, if you came to hear about Ecclesia, uh, I'll talk about it, but maybe in the question period, right? So uh, I think we've got to leave it open for some questions for you to come back to me and, and ask me what's going on instead of trying to cover lots of material. Uh, okay, so um, this kingdom. So, so what do we mean by kingdom in, 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 in there? So first is, where's the, where's the first kingdom? Where do we first find it? It's Nimrod. He's the first one that creates a kingdom. Let's read this together. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Okay, we're going to do a lot of reading. There's a, a bunch of passages. We're just going to read them through and get used to it because it's kind of interesting to start seeing what's going on. Well, one thing you're going to notice is, is the, the city, right? You saw this first city? We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But it's interesting, right? He's also the founder of a really important city in Scripture. Okay? So there, there's, that's the first kind of question I ask my students. What's the first kingdom? Now, we also ask questions like, What's the last one, right? Where do they come from? What are important moments with kingdoms? <clears throat> OK, 
Okay, so, well, there it is. First kingdom is Nimrod. So, ask a, here's a follow-up question. Can people live without kingdoms? Did they? Yes. Yes, yes is the answer. You do it, it's okay. It's okay. Yes, they lived before kingdoms. Well, if you're teaching advanced political, you know, sort of political science stuff, and you actually start talking about, what, contract theorists like Rousseau or Locke or Hobbes, you can start asking yourselves which contract theorist is right. Because there are some interesting things being said there. People like Hobbes say that, you know, before politics, everything is a war, a perpetual war of all against all, right? Locke is not so bad about that. Rousseau is positively rosy about it. But, you know, you can start asking yourself what happened pre-politically in the scripture? It actually isn't very pretty if you think about it, but that's an interesting sort of play on to start asking. So, so you ask students to connect, okay, so what do people think about politics? And what if we don't have politics? You can also ask it from the other side of uh, uh, Aristotle says, in order to be truly, fully human, you have to be a political human being. Men outside the polis are barbarians. That's the Greek attitude, right? It's kind of interesting to sort of engage those questions about does politics mean that only in polis, only in the polis, only in the political realm, do you fully th flourish? Is that biblically sound? Ah, no, it's not. That's not consistent with the biblical witness. People flourish when they what? When they have relationships with God. That's really interesting, yeah? Well, you can have a relationship with God outside the polis. Who did that? Oh, lots of people. Israel didn't have a polis for a very long time. All right, so th that's just one way to start asking. So what the, what's the last kingdom? This one, come on, everybody, Christians. Jesus is the kingdom of God. You know, we all, don't you all sing this? You still sing this, right? And he shall reign forever and ever. Yeah, that's the Bible, right? Remember that? The hallelujah chorus, right? It's the one that lasts forever. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's where it ends up. So kingdoms, oh, what else goes on with that? Think about this. Is kingdom an important theme in the Bible? Do you find it anywhere? How about everywhere? Just do a word search. It comes up 300 and, well, in the ESV, like 362 times. What does that mean? that God uses kingdom over and over and over. Does he, he doesn't use, I mean, we know God the Father, but we don't get family metaphors, not even a quarter of the time as we get political metaphors. Does he, does he talk about himself as the shopkeeper forever? No, it doesn't do that. You know, we don't get that. What we get is King, that is God's chosen metaphor to talk to us about who he is. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? That means that, that one of the big problems with kingdom, that is, for my students who spiritualize it all the time, is that they're missing something about God. If they don't know what a kingdom is, well, they're missing God's revelation of himself. So they've got to get this right a little bit. This is why we better do kingdom civics, right? We better teach them about it. But the first thing is actually to get past this, this fairy tale notion of a kingdom 
And a kingdom is something rather different, right? So then keep asking. Words used. <clears throat> what you'll find, again, use that blue letter Bible. It's just a fabulous resource. I mean, it's free, and it's got vast amounts of stuff in there. And it's fun. I, well, it's fun for me, but you know what kind of person I am, right? So you, you, can, you, can have, you can have the Hebrew words spoken out, and they're really fun. You see all sorts of funny words you've never used before, like mamalaka. Oh, that's awesome, right? That's kingdom. Mamalaka. <laughs> you know, it's just great. It's fun. Kids can get into it. And, and there's a, there's, it's, it's called Strong's. And, and the guy who, who, um, who reads to you the Strong's way to pronounce all these things, it's the same guy. And, he, you, you know, there are thousands of different words you get to hear him. And you get to have fun making fun of them. My students did. They just, Strong's 372.45. Mamalaka. He says it over and over and over. It's fun. All right, but mamalika, sorry, I, I just, I got to get you into that a little bit, right? It means to be the indisputed ruler. It means that more than anything else. So what does that mean for us? If we're talking about mamalika, does it mean that, that fairy tale thing? No, it means something like regime or state. It doesn't mean you know, heralds and princes and lords and ladies are weeping and dancing and all that kind of, no, it's none of that stuff. It means the thing that we have around us. It's a state. We're in a kingdom. Another way to talk about it is analogically, kingdom, phylum, order, genus, species, right? It's a, it's a, a sphere of influence. But it's interesting because kingdoms are always defined by an undisputed ruler. So so leads students to reflect on that. Do you have, can you have a kingdom without land? Can you? Yeah, actually you can. King of the Jews. Who was that guy? Did they have land? No, the Romans owned it all. But he was king over the Jews, that Jesus guy. Over a people. And lots of kings are sovereigns over a people. And that can lead you to think about things like, uh, Adam, you're in the United States. You know what the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is. Right? Maybe not. It means, it means if I, when I'm traveling, if I bribe a foreign official to do something they're not supposed to do, you can always remunerate people with gifts. Uh, my, my friends at the Nigerian airport are notorious for helping you be a, a, a giftful person, right? <laughs> but that just means they're doing what they're doing with the gift on top of it. That's not bribery according to the Foreign Corrupt Practices, otherwise I'd be in trouble. But the point is, is the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act means that I have to bear being an American no matter where I am. Because if I corrupt, if I bribe a foreign official to do something they're not supposed to do, I go to jail in the United States. Anybody in the world can bring charges and they have standing in the American legal system against somebody, an American, who engages in bribery. So in other words, a kingdom is not always seen by the physical things around you. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because then you now have a pathway of understanding why you better understand kingdom. Because it's exactly what the kingdom of God is. What, is, what do we see? The kingdom of God is within you. It permeates you. Now it's not a personal me and Jesus moment. Now you get something about what it means to be a lover of Jesus, and you get why God uses political images. Because politics, it grabs you no matter where you are in the world. 
Ah, you guys have it in Australia too. I noticed when you come back, there are the warning signs. If you've solicited sex with underage children, you can go to jail here. Doesn't matter where in the world you did it. It's the same thing. You just don't have to be an American to identify this. The law, the regime, the kingdom is within you. And if you bear that, oh, it has an incredible effect. You live a different kind of life, right? You, should, you can pick on Americans anywhere, <laughs> right? Oh, but you should be able to pick out Christians anywhere, too. That's the way that the law, isn't that interesting? It's just so awesome. I mean, you, you start digging in scripture, and all of a sudden this pops out at you, and you're like, wow, I'm glad I got involved in politics at the age 12. Where were you guys? You lost out. <laughs> all right, Basileus. It's the term that's used almost always in the New Testament. And a, a, a basilicon is often like a king. But again, it's, as Strong's tells us, it's not to be confused with an actual kingdom, but rather the right authority or rule over a kingdom. More like, again, a regime or state than a lords and ladies kind of thing. Um, can you have multiple kings in a kingdom? You have that in Malaysia. They have multiple kings and they rotate through, right? But, or, or we could say, how about Narnia? I had a student tell me that. How about Narnia? Peter, right? Edmund, Lucy, and Susan. Ah, but still, there was a high king, Peter. There was a high king. Ultimately, every kingdom admits only one final decision maker. Is that not why what you read about kingdoms always in conflict with each other? Because they're in conflict with the king of kings. They want to be the supreme ruler, not God. Okay, so another thing we do is we ask, who was the first king in Israel? Saul, right? Saul's first king. So then we start asking, when he gets anointed, what's, what happens? We've got a lot of sturm und drang and a lot of anxiety on Samuel's part. Right? He's all upset. The people want a king, God. And God says, do you know this passage in 1 Samuel? It's really important. They've not rejected you, says God. They rejected me. They want to have a king just like all the other nations. Ah, it's painful for God. But he says... Let them have it. And God is not, the, not the, 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 the puppeteer. He lets us, <laughs> the, the, the macabre image that comes from the United States, he gives you your own rope to hang yourself with. Right? He does that. Right? Okay. So, come on, move there, computer. Hey. I usually teach with this thing, and it usually does me really good, but right now it's just being very unpleasant. Okay, I'll go from memory, it's not hard. Um, I just don't remember where my slides go. Oh, I forgot this one. These are some of the um, um, questions we ask. Is it important in, in scripture? What's the first mention? What words are used or not used? So you can use this blue letter Bible, you can check out what words are used and not used. And what are the definitions? And, and we've already done some of that. What is it, how does it help you understand the political nature of the thing? What's the last discussion? Where does the story go? It's going to be really important when we get to the, to the discussion about cities in just a few minutes. Um, 
are there any major turning points? What are the most important discussions? What is the story? What's it mean for us? Okay? Here, let's go to this one on kingdom. This is Deuteronomy 17. I, I'm happy to share this with you all. I've got oodles of notes and, and texts, but let's read this together. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around you, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver. This is awesome. It's so clever. It's so clever. It's just awesome. So God says, let them have it. Yeah, they can have a king. But what's the king like? Is he like all the others? He's exactly not like any other king you have ever met anywhere in the world. First off, he's got to be one of you. Why? Because it's hard to beat up on your own brother. Well, all right, well maybe it isn't. But, you know, you can't be serious, <laughs> right? I have two younger brothers, and they would dispute me. So their heads are, are their echoes in my head at the moment, right? But then what's next? He says, you can't go get an army. <laughs> that, that's a mighty king, right? Filled with ho no horses. Okay. Well, next one. Can't have lots of wives, Solomon. What, what, here's the thing about wives. Wives are political. This is one of the things you kind of miss. Um, I teach the history of diplomacy. The single most important diplomatic asset in the history of international relations is marriage. That's it. That's why Solomon had wives. He had wives because those were alliances. That's how you formalize that. Right? We don't do that anymore. I don't think Donald Trump is marketing any of his children for alliances. Well, it's partly because Donald Trump doesn't care about alliances, I suppose. But the point being, I'm sorry if I offend, but... Uh, um, so no wives. Again, no diplomatic alliances. That's kind of weird. That doesn't sound like a king. And what's the next one? You can't have uh, money. And then there's another one here beyond it. He's got to read the law all the time. I didn't want to keep reading and reading and reading. He's got to read all the law, law all the time. Why? So he knows that he's no better than anybody else. So go ahead. Have a king. Just like all the nations around you. God is just laughing to the bank. It's an awesome exercise to have kids just read this passage and, sit and just reflect on it. And you lead them through and they're like, dang, what is God doing? He's wanting us not to lose the fact that he is the king over us all. Not to lose the fact that we live by his grace, not by our might. Ah, that's our story. So now you get the picture. What I want to do with, with a biblical sense of, of civics is I don't want them to learn, you know, you know if they learn history, and most of us know, have this experience of history being one ODT, AA, one uh, dang thing after another, 
I'm doing the PG version, right? <laughs> right? That's what history often is. It's utterly disconnected from any larger story of meaning. Well, that's what civics often is as well. Who cares how many judges and politicians and what the process, ah, kids, they know what to do with that. They regurgitate have learned that stuff, and they'll forget it as soon as they're done with your class. I guarantee it, because it doesn't connect with anything that's of fundamental importance to them. Liberal civics is a waste of time. Don't do it. Do this kind of stuff. It's, what happened? Did I turn it off? <laughs> Whoops. Do this kind of stuff. It, it's, it, it connects. It tells them exactly what's going on. Why does politics speak to you? It's just awesome, right? It connects. Why does God want us to structure politics in certain kinds of ways, and certain kind of limitations? Okay. There's actually tons more in kingdom, but I wanted you to get a flavor of this. Okay, so here's the next flavor. Nation. Now, nation is a tricky topic because we've got the rise of new nationalism and people are real nervous because we all live in the shadow of Hitler, right? You know Godwin's law? Godwin's law is the longer a dispute goes on on Facebook or on, on Twitter or something else, the probability of somebody being accused of being a Nazi or likened to Hitler approaches one. Right. It's also called the reductio ad Hitlerum. We call it a popular logical fallacy. You know, it's just the sort of way that you win an argument is, you're Hitler! Everybody does it. doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. He's the favorite boogeyman of the universe. Right? And so we all live in that shadow of nationalism gone amok. Hmm? So I start thinking about nations are going to be dissolved because that's our cosmopolitan worldview. That's the philosophy of liberalism. Cosmopolitanism. When the Most High, let's read this first one from Deuteronomy. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. People? Jacob allotted. Okay. Oh, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? What do you see there? about nations. Yeah, God set them up. He set them up? What are you, some sort of racist nationalist creep? Right? That's the sort of feel you get when you start reading. I mean, I did. I just like, whoa, wait a minute here. Ah, it's interesting that God gave the nations their inheritance. Does he ask Israel ever to rule the other nations? Not really. He says, they will come to you. They come to you. You don't go off dominating other nations. That's not the purpose of Israel. That's kind of interesting. Right? Do you know when the first time you meet nations? Do you know what the first time you meet nations is in, in Scripture? It's Genesis 10. It's called the Table of Nations. And it really looks like a really boring read. It looks just because it's name after name. It's the, the children of Noah. So, you know, the, the flow of the scriptures. You got Genesis, right? Adam and Eve. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute or two. And then we got um, uh, my 
my help notes made me, I uh, just realized I forgot something. Maybe we'll come back to it. But uh, the Adam and Eve, and, and then you got the big, a couple other things, but then the flood, right? A reboot. And God says, let's start again. And then Adam, uh, Noah does something that does not happen with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, you remember in the garden, what do they do? They don't go out to rule the earth. They do something else. They play God, right? So they go to the one tree, and God says to them, where are you? Not because the ruler of the universe lost them. No, no. That, that phrase is widely misunderstood. It's, hey, hey, where are you? Whose house are you in that you would do this? It's like you walked into my house as a guest, and you started telling me what to do. I'd say, oh, whoa, whoa. Where are you? Do you know? Because this ain't your house. Right? Rethink that a minute. Just, just, I did a lot of theater for a long time, so maybe that explains my proclivity to walk around and, and do this stuff. But, but the point being is if you re-emphasize different phrases in different ways, new meanings pop out. And that's what happens with this one. Instead of saying, oh, where are you? I'm a lost god in my own cosmos. No, 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 no. Stop that. that that's not what God is. I think you've got to take it a different way and say, hey, hey, where are you? Answer that for me. That you would play God. Stop that stuff. That's dumb. Don't do that. But here, the story is better. The reboot happens, and, and Genesis 10 is exactly an explanation of this. The success of the reboot. Adam and Eve have two kids. Noah has billion grandchildren. And that's the table of nations. And you get a typology in there to boot. You get uh, a nation goes off by the ocean, a nation goes by the land to build cities, and a nation wanders the rest of it. Ah, it's a typology. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they thrive. And four times we get the same phrase. They made a great number of nations, each with their own language. Ah, so what's a really important part of nations then? Language, a language diversity. The profusion of languages is an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. That's one of the characteristics of a nation. Now, now I know you're going to get all, you're all eager to go to Genesis 11, but you've got to wait a second because we're going to talk about that with cities. But, all right, so there's a really interesting thing that what are nations? Well, they have language, they have descent. I know it makes us feel a little icky. I mean, what about immigrants? I, I get that, I get that, but just hold on a second, we'll get there. But one of the characteristics of nations are you have children. This is a really hard thing for my Koreans. Because Korea, given recent demographics, will cease to exist in about 50 years. They're having 0.9 live births per baby. Actually, it's 0.8 now. Every year it drops by almost a half of a tenth of a percent. So we have no record of any society recovering, according to demographers, from 1.7 and below. Right? It's really bad. One of the things you want to do if you're born into a nation is make it stronger by having children. Or Koreans don't have babies. They do other things like go to college and have a career. And by the time they want to have babies, they're not going to have babies anymore because they're not even married. It's tough. But the point is, is that that's part of being part of a nation. 
nations are descent, their language. What else? Who? It's just sort of asking, who becomes an Israelite? This is a great example that nations are not just those things. What's the great exception? Immigrants. Immigrants. Can we name the, one of the most famous immigrants in the whole heritage, the descent of Jesus? It's Ruth. Ruth, she's not an Israelite. She's not a Hebrew. She's married in. So the nations are not closed doors in the biblical sense either. She's in the very genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. She's right there, front and center. Ah, oh, it's awesome. How about Rahab? She's not an Israelite. She's a Whoa, one of those unmentionable kind of people that you're not supposed to let in your country. But she's an Israelite. Maybe, maybe nations are not the inflexible stereotype that we've come to believe. Why? Because Hitler's kind of nation was a racist apostasy. It was a scientific construct. And he used the word race because he was an evolutionist. Right? Where does Hitler come from? 1850 is descent of man. So so this whole notion that a nation is a biological construct, that's not biblical. Because if it was, we got no Ruth, we got no Rahab. We got no, and who else don't don't we have? Look around you people. None of you are Jews. Pretty sure I've been looking for you and I don't see you. And maybe I'm missing it because Jews kind of hide easy these days. But we're not Jews. We are part of the nation that is the people of God. All right, so own the concept. Don't be afraid. Now, last thing about nation you're going to find in Scripture, and we're going to skip ahead because uh, I'm sure we're running out of time. How much time do I have left? Uh, 45 minutes? 50? Let's go for 50. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Uh, all right, so what else do we find? What are the nations that, perse- do, do nations persevere? Do nations, do we find nations at the end of the story? Yeah, everywhere. Roman, uh, Revelation's got them all over the place. They come before the feet of God in Revelation 7. All of them. They all come and sing in their own language. Like at Pentecost, remember? Pentecost is not everybody learns how to speak English in order to be one world. That's not part of the program. The Holy Spirit comes and speaks in all the different languages. Yeah, it's awesome. Right? And at the end of time, God has all these different nations and he loves them. Just like we saw on the table of nations, the the great diversity. So one of the characteristics of a nation that endures is it loves God. Everybody knows, does anybody know, do you know who John Knox is? Great reformer, Scottish guy, right? He said, I love Scotland, so it has to be Christian. Because then it endures. But nations that do not love God, it's bad news. They don't make it. Right? This is why Peter, if you remember, Peter goes to Cornelius' house. It's the up and down thing three times because he's a hard-headed guy, right? And what does he say at the house? After he comes back from Cornelius, he says, 
now I truly understand, this is Acts 10, now I truly understand that God shows no favoritism but delights when people come from every tribe and nation. Oh. So nation doesn't have to be this idiotic, stupid thing that Hitler tried to pretend to play with because that's playing God. That's not the game we play. But God loves the particularities. So then you can, you can play it out a little bit. One of, the problems, one of the conceptual problems with multiculturalism is that it's not reproducible. It doesn't last. If, if, you, if you, look, my kids had to grow up in multiple different cultures, so I, I understand the need for them. I wanted them to appreciate it. But the thing that they don't do if they don't love their culture is they don't generate new cultural artifacts because they don't know them. My, my greatest frustration is with all the multicultural kids that I have to teach on, on, on uh, exchange programs, they actually don't know anything about Western culture. They don't even know who Shakespeare is. How do you know how to, if you don't know how Shakespeare is, you're missing out on what is our tradition, our heritage. It doesn't mean it's everyone's heritage. I don't think a, a love of nationalism doesn't mean I have to, to, to teach my South, Southern African friends, they have to learn Shakespeare. But we should, my kids should, they ought to know that. Because then, not because they're nativists and, and all that, but because, because then they can care for this culture that gives their children an understanding of who they are within the multitude of beautiful peoples around the world. Yeah, okay. I think those are things, interesting things to push in front of our kids to think about. They don't have to agree with it. Right? But it does, does do it. Now, city. Oh, I love this one. This is my favorite one of them all so far. What's the story of the city? And I've already given away the first, the first question. What's the first city in the Bible? Welcome to Enoch. <laughs> this is a little two-bit town in, in the United States. Um, it actually is a town. <laughs> Archaeologists have recently recovered this. <laughs> oh, well played. <laughs> All right, so, so Enoch is the first city. Enoch is the son of? Come on, Bible trivia. Christians. Cain. Remember Cain? You guys know who Cain is, right? All right. All right so, so this is important because it's going to tell you something of what God does. It's what I talked about this morning. It's our story of what God does with us all the time, right? After the fall, all we get is busted stuff. And the question is, what do we do? how do we respond to it? Do we respond well to it and love it despite its brokenness? Or do we say, revolutionarily, I can do better, which is nonsense. That's why revolutions always eat their own children. The, the hubris that, that is involved in that stuff. Um, the Dutch reform guy, um, Ben Prinstruer wrote a book called Revolution and Unbelief, and I think he was right on it. This is what happens when you leave God out. You think you can do it all over, and all you do is repeat the same problems. Right. Okay. I'm getting a little bit of myself. Let's go back to Enoch. Okay, so Enoch is the child. It's the name of the first city because it's the child of Cain. Now, remember Cain, he, he gives a sacrifice to God, and he doesn't give the good stuff. He gives the stuff. He doesn't give the first fruits, and God rebukes him. So what does Cain do? He kills the competition. That's effectively what he does, right? 
Ha ha, now we'll see what you do, God. You gotta like my stuff because I'm the only game in town. Ha <laughs> ha That's clever, right? You gotta give him that. But God rebukes him. Again, and says, what does he tell, what does he say to Enoch, uh, to, to Cain? What does Cain have to do? What's his punishment? He has to wander the earth. What kind of people, vocationally speaking, wander the earth? The people who don't have a city. Good. You're jumping ahead of me, though. Let's go back just a step. Just a step. Who did he just kill? Okay, what does Abel do? He, no, he doesn't farm. He's not a farmer. He takes care of animals. What do animals do? They wander. Isn't that interesting, that connection? That's very interesting. God tells Cain to take up the vocation of the dude he just nixed. Huh. That's kind of interesting. That's not strength-based leadership. You know, it's inconsistent with that. <laughs> what, is, what does Cain do? How does he respond to God's suggestion? He doesn't. He does this. He stops that wandering business right, like right away. Forget that. I'm on a trend out. I'm going to stay on the trend. I'm walking away from God. I'm going to keep going. So he doesn't wander. He sets up a city. And he names it after his own son. The first city is yet another act of a rebellious man who wants to play God. And what do all cities have in the Bible? What's definitional? You know the one you got a Jericho, you got to march around? What does it have? Walls. It has walls, right? And why do you have walls? Because you are afraid of what? Well, I'm going to get to kill you. That's what, he, that's what Cain says. I can't wander because somebody's going to kill me. And God says, just chill out. I got your back on this. And still Cain says, no, nah, I've got to form a city because it's all about me. Again, he's doing what his parents did. He's playing God. It's about him. It's about his fear. It's not about living before God and trusting that he's got your back. He's got your back, people. Come on. But again, he doesn't do this. He rebels. He builds a city with walls. And inside of it, you know what he does? He makes implements of war. Of his, his children, Tubal Cain creates iron weapons. This is a case of classic, what do we call it in psychology? Projection, right? I kill, and therefore everybody looks at me in the same way that they, I look at everybody else. Oh, well, that's too bad. That's another way in which we lock ourselves into our own hall of mirrors from which we cannot escape. But God constantly busts our mirrors. He says, come on, come out of that. That's just a really nightmarish place to live. I know a lot of you are beautiful people, but it's still a nightmare to live in a mirror, a mirrored environment. All right, next city. So we got that, that's our first city. And it's a really interesting story. It's a whole lesson all by itself. Where did it come from? What kind of things happen? What, what kind of rejection and rebellion is going on? What is God doing? He's telling us to take up something that will not allow us to play God. Do what you, your brother did so you see what your brother was. And you love him for what you did to him. Ah, it's a great moment of grace that God gives to, to Cain. But he walks away from it. Okay, next big city. Come on, Genesis 11. We were just, just on the verge of talking about it. Babel. Oh, 
Oh, see, we're going to read that. I'm, I'm without my uh, security blanket, so I'm kind of messing up here. And I'm giving all, away the story and somehow going, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Skip it. I know the story. All right, so, so the next story is Babel. Genesis 11. Do you know the first word in, the, in, the, in Genesis 11? What's the first word? It's really important. Now. It says now. Now there was one language. Now there was. What's the now? It, what comes before the now? We just told you. The table of nations which has what? A variety of languages. It's good. The variety is good. It's this new thing now that's bad. And Babel is two things, by the way. It's a story of a city and a tower. And we're all, if you look at you know, pictures of what is the Tower of Babel, we get this really beautiful Peter Paul Rubens picture. Maybe you've seen it. And it, it's, it's just a gorgeous picture. Um, and it's this great big tall tower, but it's just not biblical. The tower that we talk about in the story of Babel is a, it's called a ziggurat in, in ancient Babylonian society. Okay? And a ziggurat, it's big, tall, and at the top of it is where the priest goes, who's also the king, by the way, to intercede and intervene and talk with the god of the city. Okay? So the bigger the ziggurat, the bigger the city. The more powerful the city, the more powerful the god who looks over the city. It's a kind of circular reasoning, but that's what they got at that time. So, so this is what's going on. So the bigger the city... What, what happens if you've got a really big city? You get to eat the cities next to you and appropriate their resources and people and build a bigger ziggurat until there's one ziggurat and one god over the entire universe, the entire world. That's the project. It's their city with a ziggurat. It's a political, theological empire that's being built here. Okay. And that means you obliterate all other people. This is the recipe for genocide. No diversity of people or languages, because they're bound up in the same thing as we talked about with nation. Right? It's a really interesting problem. And what does God do with this new political theological project? By his grace, he restores the diversity of languages. This is not, this is not a big punishment moment. No, it's God saying, remember who you are. You are not this empire builder stuff. You should be doing what, remember what you used to do. Be a group of different people who live in, in fragility before me, knowing that I got your back. I got you on this. It's really cool stuff. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I know I'm partial, but I think it's really interesting, right? It's a civics that, again, this city building stuff, it, we, the reform tradition, we always jump over all this process stuff that's in the scripture, and we jump to politics is the good of society, and we should all be involved in politics because we're going to redeem the world. I love that stuff, but I think they were missing the point. When we're involved in politics the way God designed it to be, we get to meet God. That's really cool, right? That's why we want to get kids into civics, right? Okay, so next big city project. In scripture, cities of, yeah, this is another whole lesson. You could easily another lesson, maybe. Oh, 
Okay, I, this means I, I got to fit it in. Uh, I got to fit in this and Jerusalem. Okay, so, so cities of refuge, where do they come from? This is a really interesting search. When you start looking at all the texts that talk about it, you ask, where's the first city of refuge come from? It, there, and there are lots of texts, and we're not going to read through them because we don't have time, and I'm going to start speaking really fast. Okay? It comes from a violent murder of a whole village of people, which itself was the consequence of a rape. You know who? Who gets raped? It's Dinah. Dinah gets raped. This is one of the daughters of Jacob. And two of the sons are so angry, they, they plot. They lay in wait, which is the definition for violent murder that we still use in most of our societies. Do you premeditate is also another way of saying, do you lie in wait to murder somebody? It's really important. We still use it in many legal systems as a definition for what is murder. Okay, so Levi and Simeon murder the rapist man, Shechem, and all of his relatives. Right? What does Jacob say in response? So a little later in Genesis, Jacob says, because you are men of violence, you will not have an inheritance in the land. And it's true, follow it up. Simeon gets cities within Judah. He doesn't get his own land. And he disappears. We never hear of the tribe of Simeon ever again, except in a few genealogies later. But they're not a living reality in Israel. They disappear. And who else? Levi. What happens with, now this is the interesting part. What happens with Levi? What do they have to do? They're not landed. God is their inheritance. And also, what are they in charge of? Besides being priests, they're in charge of the sanctuary cities where they are now required to do what? To figure out the difference between men who lie in wait and those who murder. They have to now judge themselves. Because that's exactly what they did. This is God's grace. This is how he comes to us. Yeah? It's the story of our God that lives amongst us. It's just awesome. That's why you teach civics. Because there's God. He's right there with us. It's so amazing. All right? Why would you want to teach anything else? I don't know. I never got it. I, you know me. I've been at this since I was 12. <clears throat> It's an amazing story of the city because it's an amazing story of God right here, right now. With us and our busted world. With murderers and rapists. The worst of the worst. Talk about looking at a mirror. It's awesome stuff. Okay. So much stuff. Last city. Jerusalem. Right? That's the last city, the New Jerusalem. It's a crazy city to read about. Revelation 21, 22. It's a lot of text, and there's lots of stuff in it. Right? There are things like, what's going on with all this number 12 stuff? Or, why the clear boundaries? And it gets really particular. It sounds like if you start reading through this stuff, you're thinking like, if you read through the Bible, you get to this section of the Bible that just seems to go on forever. It's this long description of how to build 
the tabernacle. And it looks just like the tabernacle. But there's no tabernacle in the New Jerusalem because why? Because we live in God's presence. Oh, that's interesting. So there's more stuff. There's a wall. There's a wall in the New Jerusalem. But its gates are always open. That's not a very safe and secure thing. It's kind of weird. What's going on with that? Things to think about that my students and I and my, my co-teacher thought about. Maybe, maybe the New Jerusalem is kind of like the armor of God. Think, think about the armor of God and, and think about it, not, and this comes up later in another discussion about war. If, if, if you are around people who are sinning and you're not and you don't say anything, what happens to your social conversation? Awkward. And if the people that you're around with get resentful, they say, oh, you're one of those holy rollers. You don't like to, you know, whatever it is they want to engage in. Right? Isn't the armor of God kind of like that? You don't need to bash people with it. You just wear it. And they go, oh, I don't want to be around you because you, you know, you're different. Maybe the beauty that's described in the city of Jerusalem is so extraordinary that that's its defense. It just drives people away because they don't want to be around those, those Christians. You know, they're different. They actually thrive. I, I, it's just, it's just it's something to think about, what's going on there. It's just one of the things that, that was brought up in, in, in multiple conversations in our, in our classroom. Okay. What does God do with the city? It starts off as a wretched thing. Pure rebellion. He uses it. He teaches the sons of Jacob, of Levi. He teaches us. He gives us the opportunity to be different, to be better than what we are. He loves us in the city, in other words. And not only does he love us in the city, he loves the city. Because that's where we go. From the garden to the city. That's really cool. Right? So what do we do with cities? Do we reject them and become new agrarians and run out and plant gardens and do, you know, I mean, I, I like gardening. I, I love it. I have one at home. But that's not God's point. We're not supposed to become naturists. He loves cities. Participate. Be involved in them. Because that's where God is. He's right there with us. So be involved in public life because that's where you see God. You meet him and he teaches you how to love. That's it. That's biblical civics. That's, I just I can't find anything more exciting to talk about. <laughs> you should too. Check it out. And if you want, leave me a name card or something or write your name in an address. I'll send you connections to my notes. It's a long working process. Each of these concepts requires an independent reading of scripture front to back with only that concept in mind because it's just so amazing. I mean, just, things just pop out. It's just awesome. It's a huge project. It's an awesome project. I can't think of anything more fun to be involved with. So if you want, if you want to be a part of that, I'm happy to include you. <laughs>